Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt, and I'm pleased to see all of you here this evening. In Jean McGarry's stunning new collection of stories, Ocean State, published by Johns Hopkins University Press, she writes about families, relationships, alienation. One reviewer wrote that McGarry's stories have the feeling of uh, the feel of paintings by Edward Hopper. And another commented that the stories in Ocean State roll over the reader like a wave. I thought that those uh, comments best describe Jean's style, lush prose, a minimalist setting, and a gradual building to the crescendo, like the crashing of waves on the shore. Jean McGarry teaches in the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins University, and Ocean State is her eighth book of fiction. Her short stories have appeared in the New Yorker, the Yale Review, Boulevard, the Southwest Review, and many other publications. And Jean, I think this might be your first reading here at the Pratt? It is? Well, wonderful. It's about time. (laughs) Please join me in welcoming Jean McGarry. Um, Thank you very much for coming. Uh, today, um, not only haven't read here, I've never been in the Poe room before, and it really is something. I feel haunted. <laughs> and somebody described the story I'm going to read tonight as, as a, a story that starts out in a ghostly manner and becomes more real. The Wedding Gowns, which is the story I'm going to read, is one of the oldest stories in Ocean State. It was published in the Yale Review in 2004, and that means it was written several years beforehand. It's a strange story, and I thought I'd try to provide some context for it. As a product of both the 1950s and the 1960s, my childhood had a strange rift in it. The tutelary spirit for girls in the 50s was Miss America, but by the 60s that icon was much diminished, if not smashed, and in her place was the woman warrior, anti-consumerist, back to nature, fighting free of all constraints, including that fancy white dress worn on the occasion where promises are made for eternity, or so it used to be in the 1950s. I think the story shows something of the inner combat in a, in a character standing between eras and clashing ideals, but that's not the whole story. What I wanted to pursue was not just the chasm between the QP and the belligerent, but something stranger. In a country in an era where second and even third marriages are commonplace, what happens to the old discarded marriage? I was thinking not just of the fates of the split-off spouses, but the old marriage itself. Wouldn't it leave some kind of film or deposit on the new union? Is it that easy to erase and forget something that once meant so much? In the wedding gowns, Greg is marrying for the second time, But for Mary, this is her first wedding. They're perhaps in their 40s. Greg's first wife is called Claudine, but later in the story, Mary begins to see her as Claudius, a person of imperial stretch. Mary has a cat whose name is Tiberius Caesar, so perhaps Mary has already decided what kind of world she lives in. The wedding gowns. The story's in three parts. This is part one. It was too late to order one, but Greg told Mary that a real real marriage was better starting off at, at zero. 
We're having a wedding, she said. Is that zero? We're having a wedding, yes, he said, but there are no bridesmaids and the cake is organic. Mary had forgotten about the cake with its collection of indigestible grains and grasses, uncured sugars, and free from color, too, even the color white. Organic was never white. It was always brown, gray, tan, gray-green. Even the fruit was flawed and grim. She was thinking so hard about the cake that her face drained of what little color it had, and the sweetness went with it. And Greg wondered where it went, when it went so fast. He could almost see through her head. Was Mary basically a colorless girl? Everything with Mary was half and half, point and counterpoint. She could see all sides of most questions, and that in itself removed color from their debates, which were always one-sided, whatever side Greg took. He was tired of playing games, picking a side just to flaunt it, or or for the rise, Since the rise was negligible and snuffed so quickly, it took her breath away, and she'd be tired for the rest of the evening. Mary was a conflict-free zone, but so tense that one time, seeing the suppressive effort and the grimace that went with it, Greg burst into tears, a first, since his mother had dropped him off first day in kindergarten in 1961. But she wasn't a Stepford wife or bride-to-be. She had no such positive format. Her one law was to give in. Even I, he'd said the day he proposed, don't need you to go that far. Maybe some men would, he said, then winced. Other men you've known, I mean. True? At the sound of that magic phrase, Mary's small color returned. She reviewed the parade of male holograms and was ready to do a roll call in her head when Greg insisted she answer the question or forget the whole business. Yes, she said. Thanks, he said. Shall we shake on it? But she laughed at this, and they kissed until all surface tension melted into drive. Why I love her, let me count the ways. There was this one that rose out of the wilderness, a clear figure on a tower like Simon of the Desert. But the approaching day, 7th of November, wrought a change. Something was hammering the smooth surface, but what or who? And what was under the fake veneer? Mary was a girl who had rid herself of extras. She had just enough clothes and enough room in her apartment and bedclothes that were warm enough and slippers for her feet, but nothing more. She liked animals, but had just one old cat, a bastard with stinky turds, sharp claws, and an air of authority that Mary did nothing to challenge. She didn't indulge the cat. Greg couldn't remember its name. It had two names, hyphenated, except in according it that hypertrophied degree of personal liberty, that rare atmosphere that Greg enjoyed, too, of friction-free living. The cat was slate gray and dour, as if late-day ailing Nietzsche had been reborn in its fur hide. Greg despised it and refused to acknowledge its place in Mary's stripped-down life. But you had to count it in somewhere, certainly counted itself in. Beyond the dubious luxury of keeping the unrewarding animal and feed and litter and space on the bed and in the bathroom where it drank its water and laid a track of muddy paws disgusting to see on an empty stomach, Mary gave not one inch or one dollar to appeasements, sweetnesses, or refreshments of the spirit. She kept a lot of books, but even these were just printed matter. 
As objects, they had no allurements, and they were read and reread, exhausted and peeled of life. You are truly the X, he said to her, on first seeing her dwelling. X marks the spot, he went on, and X the unknown. Why was he, he, why was he there? The X had something to do with it, and it still did. But here they were in October, and talk began of a wedding gown from a gal who had never even had a beautiful dress. He knew because, loving women's clothes as he did, he had slipped through the hangers in her closet and made a mental note. Claudine, his ex, wouldn't have shucked these rags and stuffs on her lowest-rung consignment. There was something wrong with every piece, and sometimes more than one thing. It was fascinating, and truth to tell, he wished he could have discussed it with Claudine. She would have a remark and a pigeonhole, but that would not affect his feeling for Mary. Mary was Mary, and Mary's clothes were Mary's clothes. Everything about Mary was pure Mary. Claudine could carp and bait and mock and titter, but Mary as Mary remained untouched. Could Claudine, he wondered, enter the fray now? now that Mary was brooding on the subject of wedding gowns for their November wedding, after a lifetime of self-abnegation. Did he want any help from Claudine after the kicks in the chest, the batterings and insults and abrasion? Claudine was the opposite of conflict-free, and Greg had had his fill of that kind of hurtful color. Still, he wondered if Mary wanted a wedding dress, and Claudine intervened, They were having dinner at a Spanish restaurant when the question of a gown and a zero-start marriage had distracted them from the vomity food, as Mary called anything, pureed or too creamy and wet, greasy, nutty, mealy, or puffed. She liked food that had a clear, single-strand flavor. Her favorites were dark bread, pickles, radishes, clear soup, and thick-crust pizza with tomato sauce only. At Spanish, French, Italian, near, middle, and far eastern restaurants, Mary ate the bread, if it was a wheat culture, or rice, if it wasn't, lots of sake, acidy white wine, hoppy American beer, and coffee. She was rail thin, with the face of a Sienese Madonna, and hair as black and and slick as a seal's. Her eyes were big and always half-closed, as if sheltering behind them another life. She was drawing on a napkin. At first, Greg saw a bird, heron or flamingo, and then he saw what had to be the dress. She had, do- she had it down in outline, but continued to fuss, cross-hatchings for the shadow it cast on the raised platform, and rays for the parts, beads or paillettes, that sparkled. That much he followed, but now she was doing front and back views, and on a whole unfolded napkin, different sets of sleeves. When had she learned to draw? Greg had never seen so much as a single fashion magazine in her apartment, and in checkout lines she meditated or forced him to tell and retell elaborate family stories, stories so valuable to him and so pleasurable in the telling that he didn't mind the eye lock she put on him. Suffice to say, say, she studied in these minutes no magazine covers. The dresses were luscious. You could read the fabric, the silk, the silk velvet, the chantung, crepe de chine, peau de soie, from the featherings and rays and strokings. They were a miracle of taste, 
and made for a body like Mary's, slim yet shapely, with skin so soft it felt furred or watered. That was reason number two, he thought, nodding his head, as if Claudine were right there, pressing him for answers or laughing in his face. Mary folded the napkins and slipped them, quite a handful, the bar's stock was depleted, into her purse, then smiled at Greg, as if meeting him for the first time. If we added, he said, stroking her long, ogival back, one or even two months to our date, you might have time. His face brightened. He could feel it glisten with sweat. His voice rose and thinned. Was he afraid? He checked his pockets, the wallet was there, the keys, and the small change he always carried. By averting his gaze, he caught his breath. She was talking in that thoughtful, unabrasive way, full of consideration for deeper feelings or thoughts unuttered, perhaps still unknown. The girlish voice cascaded over his face. It tended to make him forgetful, looser in his causal links, happier in the way two drinks will sand away the the day's rust. Gowns, he said, wedding dresses. It's not that important, she said. Maybe it is, he said. Maybe, she said, but for now let's forget it, as I can see it upsets you. Not that much. We'll see, she said. The slop was laid out before them at a round table, and he could see how it could be seen as that. Green, resiny pool, red mud with toy soldiers, orange scum, and bread like a wad of blueprints. Was this what a new marriage could wreak from the half-formed traits and bents and elasticities of habit? He had become Claudine inside and out, and once saturated, he'd gone out on the chase. A couple of years later, Claudine had become a different Claudine, older and snakier. He was still the young Claudine, and attached to him were women, a handful, attracted to that and to his now mature masculinity. He knew it, and they knew it, but the Claudine part was hidden, grasped but not named, There was a yumminess embedded in his clothes, his words, his liking for certain postures, certain pictures and kinds of music, the way he walked, and most of all, how he saw Claudine in them and drew her out of them so long as the rich illusion held. Once Claudine was whisked from his life into another man's, Greg reduced and became neither what he'd been before nor after his first marriage. There was scarcely a residue or rhyme of Claudine when Mary floated into his life. If Claudine was the sun, Mary was the moon. And he was ready for it. Age had dimmed his headlights, and it felt good, and Mary's accommodating ways sheltered him like a spacious, lightweight tent, there but hardly. What did marriage mean to a weightless moon? She might have said, no, why bother? She'd said, yes, okay, why not? And even settled on a wintry date. Claudine had been a dog day bride. And the words, nothing special, prepared him for how his new bride pictured the event. It was a forecast that chimed with the rest of what others might call a simple life. But Greg knew better. He was not, he reminded himself, staring into the opaque Spanish pools, looking for simple. Dinner was unbroken silence. The Sienese sampled the slop, a smidge of this, a spot of that. Greg was weltered in doubt. The gowns were troubling. 
the subtle sweep rustled in his ears, and it was both arousing and scary how real they had become. There were four, weren't there, when you assembled the fore and aft and fitted in the sleeves? No headpiece or veil had been drafted. No models filled the dresses, yet they weren't entirely flat. Greg was giddy with excitement. He took the dresses home. It was the night he spent Shea Mary, although he preferred his own place with its high-stacked bed and clean, velvety carpets, the lotions and liquids and stingers and soaps he kept stored in his bathroom. Some he had bought for Mary. Did she use them? Detectable on that alpaca skin, he thought, might be a curl of smoky scent. But when he asked, my skin hydrates itself, she'd said. I don't need the products. But hearing, she corrected, I appreciate the offer and the outlay. And with that, she kissed the round rim of his face and licked his eyelids. He didn't want to to lose a gather or a pleat. As they lay on her futon mattress, and he counted under his back the slats of the wooden frame, and after Mary had offered him everything contained in her outline, pretty and clear and pear-shaped as a Van Eyck Eve, he brought out the dresses and arrayed them on the ceiling of her box-like bedroom. Four was a mistake. There were five. One was ivory, one snow, one tea-stained, one blush, one pearl. There were fabrics matte and shiny, silky and stiff, ribbed and piped, panned and brocaded, overlays and underskirts, hoops, bones, wires, and ribs. In each she placed his paper doll and fell asleep folding tabs on shoulders, waist, neck, and arms. All the brides were flat, black-haired, and with a Sienese green-gessoed complexion. They spent the night on the ceiling of Greg's amorous dream. By morning, instead of extending the date of their wedding to be, he wanted to foreclose on it, shorten the gap between it and now. Mary brewed coffee in her dime store percolator. It was good coffee, but not right for the age. She set the pot on a trivet. They ate white bread toast with Welch's jelly and untinted, untinted, unsalted butter. The hell with bargains. Let's get the dress, he said, bawling the toast in his mouth before he spat it into the napkin. Which one, she asked, still in her sleep suit. I don't know yet, he said, but it's a project we can work on together. How? Did you keep the cartoons? The what? The dummies you made on napkins. His Mary blushed. Was it possible? To the roots of her Chinese hair. She put her face in her hands. Was she crying? The pretty olive face was fiery and all fiery and blotched, seeded with tears. The tears dropped to her jawbone, and he caught one in the crook of his finger and sucked it. This is who we are, said Mary, making circles with her hand of the room, the table, his face, and hers. Why push? He was emboldened by her retreat into the plainness of her life, but not yet his, to fetch her purse and mine it of the napkins. I've done some work on these, he said. Go on, she said. Well, he said, I put the best of all five designs into one dress. It's hanging up on the ceiling. What I mean is, he corrected, covering a thin hand with both of his, it's in my head, the perfect version. Let's change the subject, said Mary, looking away. Don't you want to see it? If you think it's good, I'm sure I'll like it.
No, it's your dress, your idea. You're the bride. And Mary, he added, it's your first wedding. You have all the pics. It's only right. He wanted to talk and keep talking to fill the gap opening between them. And why, why, when in his life he'd never felt so close to anyone before? They were merging, and without the sting and snap of his harsh adhesion to Claudine, it was smooth, lifelike, one surface yielding to another, or folding inward without a crease or ripple. Darling, he said, what's wrong? Mary was making a ball of the napkins and rolling it on the table for compaction. Why are you hurting me, he said, and hurting yourself? You don't understand the first thing, she said, putting the ball in the pocket of her robe, about marriage. I don't? Each person's work life is separate. That's the beauty of it. The more separate, the better. Is that, he said, pointing to the pocket, your work? Not anymore. First you change my life and bring me to the point of designing five wedding gowns and paper napkins. Then you, without asking me, destroy their integrity in the making of one of your own gowns, something fit for the queen of your first marriage, of your last marriage. And suck the air, she added, turning the lid on the grape jelly until it squeaked right out of my lungs. Did I ruin it? See this, she said, fingering the ball in her pocket. Yes. Now I have to start all over again, and with nothing, since I've used up all my ideas. This could not be allowed to stand. Greg had fallen in love with his gown, and the five-ingredient gowns. They meant something, and it meant everything, and his marriage must go forward and accumulate everything it could along the way. Now he was in love, and soon he would be more so. No organic cake either, but he would deliver the bad news bit by bit. Part two. When Greg went to work that day, first home for a change of clothes and a decent shower, Mary took out the ironing board and rolled out the ball of dresses on paper, treating each napkin to the pressure of a warm iron. The ink ran a little so that the designs reversed onto the ironing board cover, a rough flower sack. Now she had two versions of each pattern and ten right sleeves. Gloves would be nice if a bit old-fashioned, and each sleeve length required a different hand treatment. There were stockings and footwear to think of, and the question of headpiece and veil. There wasn't enough paper in the house for the requisite sketches, so Mary drove the bucket of bolts, her brother's hand-me-down car, to the dime mart for an extra-large roll of shelf paper. She knew all the help and the owner and the gal at the cash register. When she also picked out a packet of magic markers, they threw that in for free. She went back for a cardboard of tacks and corkboard and ended up writing a check for $95, purchasing a used drafting table and stool, a compass, tape measure, ruler, a calculator, and then went back again for a bolt of cotton fabric, straight pins, dressmaker's chalk, and was on the verge of buying a second-hand sewing machine when the noon whistle blew, recalling her to the day, the hour, and the shrinking span between now and when his office released Greg and he would likely make a beeline for the apartment or call and have her meet him at Charlie Spouter Inn where they drank their cocktails. It took three trips to get all the stuff into the back seat and trunk of the bucket. Mary drove home extra slow, dodging potholes and sandy shoulders, 
She dragged the materials in two huge bundles up the flights of stairs and threw it inside the door. What a mess it made, the shelf paper unrolling and attracting Tiberius Caesar to the site. He lay down on the paper carpet and cleaned his right front tire. Mary left the stuff on the floor and brewed a large percolator of coffee. She cut free of Tiberius's carpet and took the roll into the kitchen. First, she taped all the cartoons, as Gregory had called them, to the refrigerator door, then sat at the table with the scroll and tried to imagine what marriage to a once-married man would be like. There'd be shadows, echoes, and doubles. That would demand, she figured, a hoop, or a series of hoops, with the largest circumference around the feet. The air cone within would be a free zone and may be proper to wear nothing under the hoops. The hoops would be ribbon-wrapped wire. And that makes me, she said out loud, and Tiberius heard it, the wire mother. Claudine, the clothes horse, was the cloth mother. But over the air cone, protected by wire hoops, would go a sumptuous fabric cover. What? She racked her brain while coffee boiled over on the stove. She poured out a mug of burnt coffee sweetened with four sugar lumps and half and half for Tiberius and a teacup of same with skim and an envelope of saccharin for herself. Tiberius had his coffee on the stove. Mary ran the cold water tap so he could refresh himself. The sugar donuts were gone, so she shared an Oreo with Ty, taking the top black half and leaving him the middle and the bottom. The bodice of the dress was critical. It must be skin tight with a high tube neck and sleeves that came to a point on the back of the hand with a a loop around the middle finger. While she sketched these points, it occurred to Mary that this new fashion bore no resemblance to the five starters. What do I want to look like, she said aloud, to my bridegroom on the day of his second wedding? So far, so good. Hoop skirt, tight, long-sleeved, high-necked shirt waist, Yes, it would have buttons going from chin to waist, a button every quarter inch. She drew the buttons. Would they function or just decorate? Function, she said out loud, and by then, Tiberius was part of the conversation. He matched the length of Mary's strings of speech with his own more mellifluous reverbs. Then he jumped to the table and sat on the still damp drawing. His tail was on it, feathering the skirt, and, if it weren't too extravagant, a skirt of feathers over the wire integument would be perfect, but few feathers were white, long, and plumy enough for the job of covering the cone. She needed something through which no hardness would show, but feathers were too costly. It was coming along, and now the November date seemed timely, enough time but not too much. What's the half-life of passion? she asked herself. Perhaps it had already elapsed. Hence, she said out loud, the need for a gown. By four o'clock that afternoon, there were 40 gowns, each a variation of the requisite rigid, smooth inflections. She had reviewed hats, crowns, flowers, veils, garters, flats, high-button boots, muffs, capes, and trains. The outer layer was to be gauze, an organdy-like translucent icing. The cat was asleep, but twitching from the caffeine and sucrose, He was under the table, draped in crude cotton, and Mary was resting her bare feet on his furry back when Greg walked in the door 
with a huge box tied with a white ribbon and bow the size of a watermelon. Here it is, he said, and I might add, like Spiro Agnew, love it or leave it. Mary laughed. They were in an easier place now, and what for God's sake was it all about anyway? What could be so important to tear the strength, to test the strength of their bond? He tried to place the big box on the table, but there was no space. He tried to slide it under the table, but the cat was there. He put it on his lap, but it was too bulky. There was only the bed or the floor, and this box was not going on Mary's kitchen floor. It's clean, she said, reading his mind. Even, he said, if you went down on your hands and knees every single day with a box of oxidol or borax, this floor would never be clean. Mary looked at the floor, a linoleum, but chopped and bitten and grooved by a long service in an overused part of a never-vacant apartment where students and old people and young professionals had been too hard on it. She loved the linoleum and didn't scrub it too often or too hard because too fragile. It was a domestic ruin, full of history, beaten down by life. Okay, don't, she said. Are you curious? Sure, she said, open it up. What's all this, he said, and all that, pointing to the living room where the rest of the Dime Mart merchandise lay sprawled in the entry. It's related, she said, to that, pointing to the big box, but it's an earlier stage. Drawings, he said, pointing to the wads of inked paper under her elbows. Yep. Any you want to show me, he said. Are you still interested? Well, he said, first things first, open the box, test the reel. Mary opened her arm, so thin and perfectly shaped and exactly the color of a young onion. Here, he said, I love you, and I want you to wear this as my bride. She met his eyes with hers. She reached over the box to take his hands, and they held hands over the slippery skin of the box. And I love you, she said, with an elbow that dislodged Tiberius from the sides of the box where he had struggled to plant his claws. Thank you for that, he said, just in case I have to bring it back. Mary took her hands back. There's the provisional note she said. What? The just-in-case. Well, what if you don't like it? One thing leads to another, she said, and everything unravels. Love is fragile, you think, he said, a love like ours? Sometimes, she said, taking the box in her lap, a question will make it fragile. It introduces, she said, untying the bow, sumptuous, silvery, stiffened silk with a glittery edge, uncertainty, It introduces uncertainty, which everyone contains like a virus, but two people. Open it. Let's see. She opened and unpapered and lifted and shook. She stood and let the dress fall from her shoulders. It was the color of the sheen on a black pearl and just as weightless. Its shimmer rayed outward to create a set of lunar rings, a dress with an aura, a shadowy shell. It was full-length, long-sleeved, pale gray Chinese silk. A subtle watermark appeared like a seal or stamp here and there on one sleeve at the waist and hem on the shoulder. Now you're everything you've always denied yourself. Will you kill me, Mary, if I say that? He pleaded, embracing his girl with his arms in the half moon of the dress. The Siamese person, 
using the dress as a screen with Greg's hands as clothespins, stripped out of her day's rags and shivered into its chill ink. When her head popped through the simple hole of a neckline, it flattened the Chinese black hair to a set of brush strokes. The pearl sheen corrected the green gesso to the meat of a white cherry. Open your eyes, said Greg. Said Greg. She did, and saw the silk pooling at her feet. The flat was the color of tears, the folds a November rain. Greg handed her the sash, color of the fold. He turned her round and tied it in back. You have everything you used to have, and now you have this, he said quietly, and Mary seemed to be feeding on his words, first tasting them. It was a new kind of food. A gray bride, she said, and all of this, and all, all there is of me is me. He nodded. It's strange, he said, more like a skin than a coating. Part three. It took a whole hour on a free Saturday to clear the apartment of the art and sewing material. Mary did, did not save, recycle, or return, even though stuff was still in its plastic with price tags. The shelf paper made a nice door-to-door carpet for Tiberius, so let him have it. The dress was hung from a ceiling hook in the bedroom. The light shone through it, and you could see a map with certain scenes and near scenes. The Chinese silk warp with watermarks suggested an inkwash landscape, poet by a stream in the, wa- in the winter mountain. Give me a chance, Mary had told Greg, to think about what goes with it. But already she knew that Claudius Caesar would supply the accoutrements as she had the dress, which was from a costume house. It was a priestess chamber gown. That's what the literature said. Mary found the literature in the pocket of Greg's raincoat, the one he left in the closet because the weather had turned so mild. Claudius had perhaps written a check. The bill for $450 was marked paid. The box was from Mano Schwartz, a fur shop and special occasion, but that was a dodge. Mary brushed her cheek against the silk of the gown and let its fly weight float and tickle. How could a dress meant to house the body on such a crucial day have so little will to exert or fell weight to stabilize? Mary left the dress to shiver in the breeze. She led Tiberius, who tracked her like a dog, to the shoebox, where under the stacks of ordinary photos was the purloined and secreted shot of the first wedding. Mary allowed herself a glimpse of this shiny square once every two months. Any more, and the image would carve an outline on her corneas, a crosshair to reality. Any fewer, and she'd begin to forget it and to lose all the thick backing that came with a mature man. She switched on the light, creating a golden flower at the heart of the photo. The gleam in the otherwise darkened room was like a specimen under glass. Now there were two layers, the flame that dazzled the surface and the wedding beneath it. Tilting the photo rolled the flower of light around the wedding. Mary was not in this picture, not in the corners scarred by the whisked-off tape, not among the heads that rolled out from under the slippery flower, not coming up from underneath like a serpent in the grass. Was there something in the photo that predicted her arrival? Moving the light flower, she measured the angle between the freshly wedded couple whose touching sides formed, yes, a sloppy, obtuse angle. 
Next to the bridegroom and looming close was his mother. Mother and son were in parallel, as were the bride and her father, parallel but not touching, closer to their share of the couple than was spouse to spouse. The obtuse triangle, dead center, was where Mary, with a different personality, could fit herself. Actually, there was room there for three of her kind. There was also a bachelor brother with a wide space between his black and white costume and the baby brother, a squirt, next to him. That was the logical space, no? Was the bachelor's name Angelo, or was it just a joke name? All of this was icing on the cake, Mary's eyes iced with tears, both hopeful and sad. No place for me here, and no invitation either, or memory. So she was free, and felt free, to undress the bride and try hers on, the only suitable dress, and the best one. Thanks.